Bible with you. You want to be around 1 Kings 18.19. That's where you want to be. In fact, if you can put your finger in there and go over to James, which is near the end of the New Testament, and James chapter 5, we've actually referred to these verses before, but it might be good just to look at them once more. And that's James chapter 5 and verse 16. Or at the end of verse 16 into the, the next couple of verses. Where you find James saying this, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. We have mentioned in these last three Sundays in Elijah that Elijah was a man just like us. But it's also very interesting in that passage of James that when he was looking for an example of a righteous man, he was thinking about Elijah. When he was looking for an example of a praying man, persevering in prayer, he thought about Elijah. So it's very interesting that we find that reference to Elijah just after the verse where he talks about uh, the prayer of a righteous man is effective, powerful and effective. And right away he speaks about Elijah and about Elijah's prayer life. That is quite important to us. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 41 and 42, you'll see that Elijah is climbing back up to Mount Carmel again. And this time it's not to confront 450 prophets of Baal or, or drench the altar with water and pray for the fire to come down. He, he's not looking for a God who answers by fire. He's looking for a God who answers by water. The God who answers by rain. And actually in these verses, you look at verses 41 and 42 of 1 Kings 18. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Elijah went off to eat and drink. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, and he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Interesting. He climbs out Mount Carmel again, but this time to get down and bend down his head between his knees. And really he's praying to God. For the rain to come after the three and a half years. This, he believes that God has promised it. That there's going to be rain coming after three and a half years. But he believes that God wants them to pray for it. And so we find them there in a wonderful attitude of prayer. And what happens is it seems from the scripture that Elijah prays. And every time he prays, he sends his servants to go over the hill of it in Mount Carmel to the Mediterranean and just to see if there's any clouds coming in the sky. And I get the impression he does that at least six times. Six times he prays, six times he sends his servant until it comes to the seventh time. And so you see there's a tremendous lesson there on, on believing prayer. When I was at the VTI all those many centuries ago, <laughs> I went back in 67, 69, 
we always had a day of prayer I can't remember if it happened once a term or twice a term but I think it was every term there was this day of prayer no lectures whatsoever and there were those there in the college who were fasting as well and, and they were having this tremendous day of prayer and they were really storming heaven the throne of heaven and they were so convinced that God was going to answer prayer that they get a newspaper the next day or the next couple of days just to open it up and just see exactly how God answered their prayers and that's believing prayer believing that God is going to do something to change something to help some situation that they've been praying about and Elijah seems to be doing that with his servant he's bending down there on the top of Mount Carmel praying for the rain and saying away you go and see if there's any clouds and of course as you well know it says in verses 44 the seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea so Elijah said go and tell Ahab hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you look at verse 45 meanwhile the sky grew black with clouds the wind rose and a heavy rain came upon came on and Elijah Ahab rode off to Jezreel the power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his coat his cloak under his belt he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel what a runner I think he was on Weetabix or something like that he got this extra energy and he was able to run even faster than Ahab on his chariot boy he must have been running some and what the Bible is really saying to us there is that the great blessings come from small beginnings that small beginnings can issue in great things happening in our nation, in our world, in our lives. And we've got to recognize that the Bible tells us do not despise the day of small things. That comes through in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Never despise the day of small things. But hope and wait for great things from it. But only five loaves and two small fish. That's pretty small, isn't it? And yet a multitude was fed. Of course we could stop for a week uh, and just talking about how God uses small things to bring a great result. We could stop for a week on Elijah, the man of prayer, the prayer of judgment, when he prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. A prayer of tremendous witness, when he prayed that the Lord would send fire upon the drenched altar. We could stop for a week on the prayer life of Elijah alone. And James then sees Elijah as a man of strong passions, consecrated to the Lord's cause, and, and issued a strong, effective, prevailing prayer. Maybe we should ask ourselves at this point, how, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I always think that's the most difficult part of the Christian life, to keep, to maintain a good prayer life. The devil's always active to make sure we're not doing that kind of thing. Okay, let's go on to 1 Kings chapter 19. And the first thing that strikes us here in 1 Kings 19 is the contrast between the Elijah of 1 Kings 18 and the Elijah of 1 Kings 19. In 1 Kings 18 we have this fearless prophet standing before 400 false prophets of Baal with such a demonstration of divine power on Mount Carmel that one begins to wonder why in the world 1 Kings 19 was ever written. Having come for that great powerful demonstration on Mount Carmel, why is 1 Kings 19 needing to be written? Had Mount Carmel not proved to the Israelite nation 
that this God was the true God. Had Mount Carmel not proved that the Israelites not been convicted of their sin and turned from their wicked ways, it doesn't seem like it. There's not one word there that tells us that from that point of the fire coming upon the altar, the killing of the prophets of Baal, that Israel repented of their sin, especially Ahab. Not one single word. Nothing had happened. It seems that the answer to Elijah's question, how long are you going to go limping between two opinions, it seems that the question was answered by, well, not yet, Elijah. That would be too dramatic. That would upset our routine if we changed from our wicked ways. And so in despair, Elijah cries out to the Lord, I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And he finds himself on the run from this woman, Jezebel, who's trying to kill him. She's saving his life. So before we think of Elijah's fear, I want you to look at this one of 1 Kings 19, which in a sense is the start of the trouble. What does it say in 1 Kings 19 and verse 1? Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Do you see what it actually says there? He told her all that Elijah had done. Not one word of what God had done. Elijah was praying to God for the, the fire to fall. And so Ahab goes and sees his wife Jezebel. Says nothing about what God has done. Talks about this Elijah. You may have been thinking of him as some kind of wonder man. But he was also the one that was instrumental in killing the 400. Or getting the 450 prophets of Baal killed. He reports back to his wife. Of course it might be that, that Ahab saw more in Elijah than that. He didn't want to tell his wife, this idolatrous woman, that God was really working. He was a woman, perhaps, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but he was a woman you couldn't really share what God was doing. You couldn't really share with somebody like that. Now think of the story of David. Remember the story of David where he brings the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom. He brings it along, he's coming to Jerusalem, and he's really excited. And he begins to dance before the Lord and some of his clothes are off. He's not actually naked. Some of his clothes are off and his wife Michael is looking from the window and he says, oh Michael, what a tremendous thing bringing the ark of the Lord which was symbolic of God's presence. We're bringing it back to Jerusalem. And she said, you were a disgrace. An absolute disgrace. Boy, how we wives and husbands have to encourage each other in the faith. You're an absolute disgrace. You were naked. He wasn't actually naked at all at the end of the day. But uh, he said, it was to the Lord. It was to the Lord. And, and sometimes we've got to watch how we encourage each other. Some people or some partnerships where one's a Christian and one's not a Christian and they haven't got that privilege. Oh, we pray for them. And if they can't share it with their partners because one doesn't understand the Christian faith, doesn't even want to know about the Christian faith, I hope they can share it here with the believers in this place. Let's move from Ahab's reluctance to speak of what God had done and think together of Elijah's fear. When you realise that, that Jezebel was after him and when it seemed to Elijah he had no great company of prophets to support him, well that's how it seemed to Elijah. There was no great company of believing prophets to support. 
What does Elijah do next? Well, what he does next is he travels from the, the northern kingdom of Israel right down to the southern kingdom of Judah to Beersheba. You almost seem to remember that in the Bible there's this um, sort of north-south division. It's Dan to Beersheba. It's almost like Johnny Brooks to Land's End. That kind of division of the land. Dan to Beersheba. So the Beersheba is right there on the south in the kingdom of Judah. Jehoshaphat is the king there when Elijah goes down. And there at Beersheba he leaves his servants. So he's come all the way from the northern kingdom of Israel down to the southern kingdom. Then the Bible tells us he goes a day's journey into the desert. He goes away for a day's journey. Look at 1 Kings 19 and verse 4. It says, while he went himself went a day's journey to the desert, he came to a broom tree or a juniper tree, and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. You see here, he feels he's such a failure. In the very depths of despondency, he cries out to the Lord, Lord, I have had enough. Have you ever said that? <laughs> Don't join them, go come into the ministry, whatever you do. But sometimes I've said, I think I have had enough of this church. <laughs> Let's go. He just says, we're not going. <laughs> they don't appreciate such a spiritual and holy ministry. <laughs> Tell me, they, they all know something about Elijah's wilderness experience, especially when we don't see fruit for our labours. Just don't see it. It's been a thought for the missionaries in Muslim countries where the fruit can be very, very scarce and the, pro the, pro the progress, progress can be very, very slow. Remember them in prayer. Pray for the mission of the gospel who labour in non-evangelical churches. Some of these evangelical ministers who, who come into a church that's not been used to that have a terrible time. It's almost like a, a persecution of the minister because he's bringing a message to them of salvation which they've never heard before. They've always believed that joining the church is salvation and they're going to get to heaven. Along comes this minister and he says, you need to be born again. I've got a friend, you know, maybe some of you know Jim Martin. Jim Martin, uh, we've been friends for a long, long, long time. I went back in the days of issue camps. And when he became minister at Caldercruz, he invited me to do a children's mission there. He said, Alec, you would not believe what's happening in this church. <laughs> and one time he just came from the pulpit and he stood in front and he said, I need to tell you why I'm here. I'm here that you may get saved. And this church at Caldercruz had never had a guy like Jim Martin there before. And he went through an awful time trying to explain to him why he was preaching as he was preaching. It was almost like a, a persecution. But you have this wonderful thing here in God's word. That although we don't see things happening, there's something that we all need in that kind of wilderness experience. We don't see the fruit of our labours as quickly as we would like. And what we really need is a walk in faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is something that you have when you don't actually see exactly what's up ahead. You hang in there in faith when you don't see instantaneous results. We're, we're doing a series at uh, Kirk and Tiller just now on the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning is all about patience. And you have to have patience to see the garden 
growing with the vegetables and the flowers it doesn't happen overnight children when they plant seeds they want to see it happening the next night they get up at their beds and say where's the, where's the growth and, and sometimes we have to have the patience to see God at work and while that happens we need to walk in faith and what was happening was Elijah was walking by sight he wasn't seeing Ehab repenting he wasn't seeing Israel repenting he was walking by sight rather than by faith and which reminds us of course of Habakkuk 3 and verse 17 though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall yet will I rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Saviour and sometimes we need to cry out folks Lord I believe just help me with my unbelief Look at Kings 19 and 1 Kings 19 verse 5 then. But there we find that the Lord does not desert his people in the wilderness. It says in verse 5. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Now Elijah feels like asleep. He's in desperate need of rest. But what he also needs is food. And for that the angel touched him. If ever we think that the Lord will have nothing to do with our wilderness experiences, well you ought to read the story of Elijah. He knows about your wilderness experience. And he knows how much you need rest. And he knows how much you need to eat. Sometimes it's the lack of eating and the lack of sleeping and the lack of rest that is the thing that the Lord wants to pinpoint in people's lives when they're despondent, when they're in the wilderness experience. And that was true of Elijah's life. And so what happens here is that the Lord had an angel who touched him. And that touch of the Lord was so powerful in Elijah's life. It, it woke him out of his sleep and the, and the angel of the Lord says, Elijah, arise and eat. And this happened not once but twice. Look how practical it is. Verses 6, 19 and verse 6. Elijah wakes up and he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over the hot coals and a jar of water and he ate and drank and then lay down again. He needed rest. He needed sleep. He needed food. That's how practical God's word is. It's not another Bible study was required. It was just rest. And it tells us why that is true. Look at verse 7. It tells us Elijah gets that second touch to get up and eat. Why did he get that second touch? It says in verse 7, The journey is too much for you. It's too much for you. And this commentator says, My friend, today may be a very happy day for you. You may think that you're sufficient for the battle of life, but I want to tell you that the journey through life is too great for you. You're going to need a saviour. You're going to need a helper. And Elijah, as rugged as he was, needed God. And folks, it's the same with you. It's the same with me. Some of the things that you need is a, a regular sleep and fruit into our bodies and rest and to rise up and eat. That's how practical the word of God. You remember that old song we used to sing? Well, Kathy will remember. All those years ago. <laughs> In times like these, you need a saviour. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure, your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. And the chorus goes, the rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. The rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure, 
your ankle holds and grips the solid rock in times like these we need a saviour but what does Elijah do now? Does he go back to the northern kingdom again and, and get back into the battle there in Samaria? He doesn't. He goes even further away. He goes further into the desert, away to Mount Horeb, which is better known to you as Mount Sinai. That's where he makes work. And of course he climbs Mount Sinai uh, and, until he came to a cave where the Lord of the Lord came to him in verse 9. He's been refreshed by sleeping and by eating by the angel of the Lord being present there. And he's not ready yet to go back to Samaria. And he finds his way up Mount Sinai. And what does the Lord say? To look at verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said it only once but twice. Now Elijah's really out in the sticks here. And it may be that Elijah felt to himself, well, Mount Sinai, that, that's the place to be. That's the place where God showed his glory to Moses. That's the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments. Surely if any place should, I should be there to experience something of God in that mountain. And instead, back comes the Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And of course one of the wonderful things is about that incident there is that the, the, the Elijah was getting a word from the Lord even as he was going further away from his calling as it were in, in Samaria. And it's a bit like you know the, you're, the blessing to know that we cannot go anywhere out of the reach of God's eye and his arm and his word. It's a bit like Psalm 139 and verse 7. Where shall I flee from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer is you can't. You can't flee from his spirit. You can't flee from his presence. It's a bit like the, uh, the hound of heaven in that uh, poem that you remember so well. But back comes the searching question. What are you doing here? At verse 13 there. This comes as a word of reproof. And the Lord seems to be saying to him, What are you doing so far from home, Elijah? Why are you fleeing your country? You're a prophet, you're a man of God, having proved my power. Are you still fleeing from Jezebel? In this cave that you're in, is that the place where you're meant to be? Is that where your ministry is going to be exercised? Or should you be somewhere else? A man this question comes to us with a new force. We need to ask ourselves, are we in the place where God wants us to be? A similar question was after Jonah. Remember Jonah? He's out in that boat. He's fleeing away from the presence of, of the will of God. And the sailor comes to him and says, What are you doing here? Where are you from, Jonah? And I wonder if this is a question the Lord wants to ask us. I'm, I'm not thinking essentially or geographically, but sometimes that happens. What are you doing here when I've got some purpose for you in some mission field somewhere in some other area of the world? That can happen in people's lives. But I'm thinking of a spiritual walk. And sometimes we find ourselves in the old haunts and the, the old ways. And we think perhaps like Elijah that nobody uh, really needs, can see us on these sort of things. And like a bolt out of the blue, the Lord presents the challenge. What are you doing in that place? What are you doing here? Is that how you're going to exercise your ministry? I don't think so. <coughs> when I started at Dunoon all those years ago in 83, I had a terrible situation to deal with because there was a situation there where a, a husband 
was meeting up with a, a lady who was a divorcee too often this husband had a wife and four kids and it was rumoured in the place that he was going to her house and, and they were exercising ministry together in the church and what have you and I had the job of trying to sort this out this, this man, this husband was meeting this woman at the school gates with a teacher he was going to help her with messages and he had a wife at home with, with four kids to look after and so I brought this woman into the study I said I'm just a new minister here I said but we're not having this we are not having it Oh, she said, the Lord has told me that I've got to work with him. I said, well, I don't care what you feel the Lord has told you. I know this man's got a wife and four kids, and I'm not having you two meeting up like that. I'm just putting my, my colours on the match right away. Well, she says, we're leaving the church. Another man said, we're leaving the church. The only two families that had kids the same age as our kids, and they lost them about six months. I wonder how many times that man heard and never responded, what are you doing here? when you've got a wife and four kids back there that you should be helping more what are you doing here? and sometimes the Lord has to say that to you Matthew Henry this commentary puts it this way it concerns us often to inquire whether we be in our place and in the way of our duty it's pretty old language but it says this am I where I should be where God calls me where my business lies where I may be useful are you in the right place? then God's going to bless you what are you doing here Elijah? Let's look at Elijah's reply in verse 10 and it's also repeated in verse 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah seems to be saying here, what's the use of going on? I'm of all you've got Lord and my days are numbered. I am all you've got. You know this, God has his way of dealing with his servants. And what we learn here is that God does not always deal with us, even the same person, in the same way. He deals with us in different ways according to the experiences of our life. God was going to teach Elijah that he was sovereign, and that whereas in times past he had revealed himself in the wind in the earthquake and the fire that God could do it differently this time and look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Kings 19 the Lord said go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord but the Lord is about to pass by and a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake after the earthquake came a fire but the Lord was not in the fire after the fire came a, a calm, a gentle whisper as some of you know it better as the still small voice after the fire a gentle whisper the still small voice but a wonderful lesson here that God is never confined to one way of working or one way of revealing himself as people's needs differ so does his way of working Elijah may have been looking for a, a spiritual blast but all God was going to do is reveal himself in the still small voice so what is Elijah learning in all this? There are three things that Elijah learns in closing. Number one is that he learns something unforgettable about God's methods. 
God wanted Elijah to learn that in that still small voice, awakening his conscience, awakening the conscience of the nation, he could do more in terms of reform than some great powerful forceful revolution. There were things that God could do in Elijah's life, the nation's life, through a still small voice. He couldn't do otherwise. And that's true about your life and mine. There are times when you wouldn't be wanting a spiritual blast. But you just want that gentle voice of God speaking ever so sensitively and ever so powerfully into your own heart and experience, into your own situation. And secondly, this God has all Elijah has also to learn something unforgettable about God's resources. Elijah implies here that work is hopeless, the cause is lost, and he's ready to die because he alone is faithful in all the prophets. And his life was in danger. There's a mix here, a, a strange mix in Elijah's life. You, you can see a deep concern in Elijah's heart, but also that self-importance there. A bit of pride. And more than a touch of despondency. And if the truth be told, we all tend to judge a whole course of war from what's happening in our bit of, our bit of the front line. We judge a whole course of war from what's happening in our little bit of the front line. There's a lot of other things happening to you. But Noga said, 7,000 beside you haven't bowed the knee to Baal. These God had already marked as faithful and will spare. How different the battlefield looks when you're up on the mountain with God and you see things from God's perspective that are other people just as faithful as you. I used to be terrible, you know, in my younger days as a Christian, that uh, all, the, all the churches in Scotland were all non-evangelical. There were no Christians in them. <laughs> and this Christian minister came to my wee village in Blackridge and I said, I don't think there's any Christians here in this church. You've got a big job on your hands. He said, you're not bigoted or biased by any chance, are you? Oh, I said, I know them all. I know them all. And it wasn't long before he noticed he began to uh, learn about people who actually knew Jesus as their personal Savior. And all these years I've been blinkered, I hadn't seen this, I'd covered them all with the one brush. And sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we have to learn that God has got other people who know Him in other churches who love the Lord. And we have to give that praise to God as well. 7,000 you haven't bowed the knee to be. And the third lesson is this. Elijah learned was that God's unhurried, undeviating purpose. Not just God's methods, not just God's resources, but his purpose. And so while Elijah despairs about the future, God's got it planned. It's wonderful, isn't it? Elijah despairs about the future, and all the time, God's got it planned. God's got a plan to sort out Ahab. And the person of the new king of Damascus, whom Elijah has to go and anoint. God already had a new king in place to replace Ahab in the name of Jehu. Always remember Jehu. You never forget Jehu. He is the man who drove furiously. Whenever you get a fast driver, he's got a mascot called Jehu on it, you know. And it says that when he, he gave somebody a ride in his chariot, the knuckles were white because he would drive so fast. <laughs> Jehu was the fast man. And he was going to replace Ahab. And what's more, Elijah. While Elijah has been moaning about the solitary figure, God's got a successor to Elijah in the name of Elisha. 
God could have all planned out. He's got it all sorted. Elijah hadn't realized in these darkest moments that God's purpose was already in place. That God's reply and Elijah's obedience would set something in motion beyond anything that Elijah could even imagine. God had it all in hand. It's good to know that, isn't it? Now, well, we're concerned about the future regarding our family, regarding our church, regarding our lives. God has got the whole thing planned. And we really have to walk in faith and trust Him for that. When we get downcast, we do get downcast, don't we? We feel the battle is lost. We might even feel it turning in flight, but the truth is that God's eternal purpose marches on. That purpose doesn't halt. It's never caught unready or thwarted by evil. He knows the next move. He knows how it all pans out. So there it is. Elijah's experience of God, his experience of prayer. To Israel and Ahab and to James, the prayers of this prophet, it spoke of power and judgment when he prayed that there be a drought on this nation because of its wickedness. He had a prayer of witness. A prayer of witness when he prayed God that he would send fire upon the drenched water. But Elijah's own heart and experience. God humbled this man. Uplifted him. And he knew a different kind of prayer. The prayer of seeing things from God's perspective. On God's methods. The still small voice. On God's resources. 7,000. You haven't bowed the knee to bear. And God's unchanging purpose. A new king in place. A new successor in the person of Elisha. His truth goes marching on. And it seems that Horeb or Sinai brought a new understanding to Elijah. And it sent him back to his task. Humbled no doubt. But with faith and hope. That brought him in the end to glory. Remember it ends? Elijah's life cut up in a chariot of fire cut up to glory in the chariot of fire such is the greatness of the God that we serve let's have a moment of prayer Lord we thank you for this tremendous story of Elijah and for the things that we learn here tonight of those times in the wilderness those times of despondency when we feel we're the only faithful ones left in the whole place Lord I thank you for the still small voice that you can speak into many hearts and do great things from that. We thank you, Lord, for, for your resources, that there are other people in this community who love you, who want to serve you, and we want to identify with them. And we thank you for your eternal plans and purpose that you're setting in place. Even as we concern ourselves about our own future, you've got everything in place. But help us, help us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.